From People.ai, this is the Legends of Sales and Marketing podcast. Each week, we'll dive into a story from a different legend of sales and marketing to find out how they changed the game. Visit people.ai slash legends for more episodes, interviews, and profiles on more of these icons of sales and marketing. show the world that B2B marketing does not have to be dull and boring and full of jargon. It's human to human. It's not B2B, B2C. It's human to human. And people buy for three reasons, functional, economic, and emotional. Hi, everyone. Justin Schreiber here. Today, I'm joined by Carol Carpenter, CMO of VMware. And since we are in COVID, Carol is actually being accompanied by two faithful canine companions, Silas and Pepper. We'll hear more from them later in the show. Over the course of her career, Carol has worn many hats, including prominent roles in product, strategy, and even CEO. During our conversation, we'll talk about how those experiences have shaped her as a marketer. Carol is also no stranger to navigating large organizations. Today, she leads a team of over 700 people and previously led global marketing for Google's cloud business. We'll discuss how Carol manages to stay one step ahead despite the massive responsibilities she carries, and we'll learn how she's bringing humanity back to B2B. Carol, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Justin. Great to be here. Carol, there is so much great material. I can't wait to get through it. It all culminates with the time now that you're spending at VMware. Those that have listened to the podcast, though, know that I always like to start at the beginning because there are so many interesting stories that help to shape perspectives and talents through through your life. You have a particularly fascinating story that I think starts with your mom and dad. So tell me a little bit about who they were and the kind of impact that they had on your life. Sure. My parents are my heroes. My parents were those typical immigrants in the 60s who they came from China. Actually, they met in Taiwan, then came to the U.S. My father came first for education, showed up in San Francisco with $5 in his pocket and ended up making his way to several colleges across the country and ultimately ended up doing his Ph.D. at the University of Pennsylvania, where he sent for my mother, you know, and in those days, no cell phones, nothing. And she bought her ticket, didn't know where she was headed and ended up in New York City thinking that was the U.S. And um, thanks to the generosity and kindness of a stranger who helped pay for a Greyhound bus ticket, got her to Philadelphia. And somehow they found each other and had three children. And I was the last of the three kids. So really, they're my heroes. I mean, they were definitely those the, the work ethic, the the notion of um, you know family coming first. I think a lot of those traditional values definitely were instilled. And my, I think I mentioned to you previously, my father ended up graduating, and there are never that many PhD teaching jobs available in any year. And his PhD was in political science, and we ended up in West Virginia in a small town where there were two Asian families, but both were doctors. One was a true medical doctor family. And then my father was the other true doctor, a professor. 
Well, first of all, Carol, I really am inspired by that story. I hope that we still live in a country where the kindness of a stranger sees someone who needs help is willing to buy them a bus ticket and send them on their way to a new life, which had so much impact on so many people other than just themselves. I hear you. I agree. I I I think we still have it in us as a country. <laughs> just doesn't always surface through social media, right? We're going to hope for the best. And I think it's also telling stories like this. You really realize the impact of that. So you were in West Virginia. What was that like? You mentioned that you're one of two Asian families to assimilate into that community. You know, when I think you grow up in a small town, a few things happen. One, everyone knows you. And moreover, if you're in a small town and you're one of two Asian families, everyone really knows you. So I could tell you so many stories, you know, there, there was 70s, 80s, lots of discrimination still. And it wasn't always overt. Some of it was, some of it wasn't. And, you know, one of the things I admire about my father is he, he loved sports and he would take us to the football games at the college and we, we loved sports too. And we'd go up there and people would say slanderous things like, hey, Chink, what are you doing here? Or, you know, really cruel things that hopefully we don't hear so much today. And my father would walk over and say, hi, my name is Dr. Wong. I think if you knew me, you wouldn't say those kinds of things. Meanwhile, my brothers and I are like, get him, dad, get him, get him, hit him. Come on, dad, take him down. And that was just not my father. My father was a really generous forgiving person, much more so, and really set an example for all of us that he believed that words and education could change our socioeconomic status, as well as his, you know, just being an outsider. And how do you become an insider? And the irony is in a small town, everyone knows you. So you are an insider, like everyone knew Carol Wong, everyone knew my brothers, my brothers played lots of sports. And it was just, but at the same time, um, you know, I personally, I know it was one of my crucibles is, you know, I, I know the feeling of being on the outside looking in and that has stayed with me. What your father did there when he went up and he introduced himself to those individuals is such a powerful thing, humanizing himself and not allowing them to treat him as an object or, or something that was foreign. John Thompson was on the show a while back. He shared a really disheartening story as well. His response, though, was to walk up to the person and say, I want to introduce myself. This is who I am. I want to understand why you are saying those things about me that you're saying. And he actually elicited an apology from the person when that person realized he was talking to a real human being with talents, with feelings. I think there's just a wonderful lesson there for all of us. So true. So true. Anytime you can humanize and avoid these broad strokes that we we all as humans apply to each other right on so clearly equity inclusion belonging is important to you it goes deep with you today as a leader of a massive marketing organization how do you how do you ensure that your organizations embrace equity, inclusion, and belonging? And maybe you could share a couple of the specific things that you do to make sure that that's a powerful force. Sure. And, you know, Justin, it, it's it's hard. Let me just say that. And, and we all know it is because of our own biases and the fact that um, we, we have to 
always be on the lookout for microaggressions and how do we ensure that people are included? I mean, I'll give you one great example right now is, you know, we're doing all our meetings on Zoom. How do you ensure that everyone does feel included, that everyone's voice is heard? And um, I have taken to calling on people and making sure, because you know, everyone has great ideas. It's eliciting them. Um, in some ways, Zoom makes it easier. In some ways, it makes it harder or, or whatever video conferencing you're using. For me, I found that two things also are, are really important to ensure equity and inclusion. One is you have to measure it. And I'm really proud of the way that VMware focuses on DNI. And in fact, it is part of the bonus program. There's teeth behind it. I've been at other companies where there are aspirational goals, but there's actually teeth here. So now, obviously, that's more the stick or carrot. And there, you know, we want to have other ways to drive that. You know, the, the other thing we do is um, we all have, this is a little more of the guidance and, and stick, but every interview has to have at least two underrepresented candidates. Every interview panel has to have someone who is diverse on the interview panel. The, the other part of it, frankly, is location strategy. So this is one of the benefits of, of work from anywhere is we can now recruit and everyone doesn't have to be in Palo Alto, which on its own has some limits, right? In terms of who you can recruit, who wants to live here, who has family here, who has roots. It's opened up the world for us. And so being very open to that, like people can be anywhere. So those are some of the areas we're focused on. And for me, it's just being really transparent with my team about the importance. We talk about it at every town hall. It's actually a topic we bring up and different people will talk about either their experiences or what they're doing within their team. Because you can't, as an organization, dictate everything. You know, a lot of it does need to come from the people wanting to do to be a part of the DNI initiatives. I'm glad you touched upon the location strategy. I think that's something that we often overlook. But actually throughout history, if you look at the different different economic revolutions, to a large extent, they're tied to the mobility of the workforce. The industrial revolution, the first technical revolution, the internet revolution, it involved mobilizing groups of people in new ways. What I'm so excited about and the thing that's COVID is opening up is this massive opportunity, regardless of where you live on the planet, you now can not only contribute, but you can get access to education that's going to make you a better person. And a lot of these economic crises that we were speeding towards as you had the haves and the have nots, I'm optimistic that we'll be able to address through these new these new paradigms that we're embracing. Absolutely. I, I agree. And I think the other paradigm is around how we collaborate because you know, when you are remote, how do you have the same serendipitous interactions? How do you have the same kind of relationship building? And I can't wait. I think, you know, what you're doing uh, with people.ai, and I think there are some solutions we have around end user, there's just so much out there. And there's probably a lot more innovation yet to come. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I also wanted to talk a little bit about your education before we get into the the career things that you've done. The there are different challenges depending on your background and experience. I've talked to people on the podcast who haven't completed a college education, and they talk about the fact that they had to overcome the baggage that came along with that and find 
new sources of self-esteem that weren't directly tied to the fact that they didn't have that degree hanging on their wall. You have a very interesting background in that you went to Stanford and you went to Harvard, you worked at Apple, you have these blue chip logos on your resume throughout your life. But I would also suspect that there is a tendency to equate self-esteem to those logos as well. Is that something that you've encountered? And if so, how do you move beyond that and base your self-esteem on things other than the names on the resumes? You know, we all crave some level of acceptance and some level of validation. And where you work helps to validate oneself for sure. For me, I don't know if it was accidental in the sense of I, <laughs> okay, when I applied to college, I, uh, first of all, I barely took the SAT on time. Like there was no prep class. There was like, we just didn't do that in West Virginia. Like, in fact, I was going to go to WVU, West Virginia University on a full ride, which was hugely compelling. And I should have mentioned also, you know, I mentioned how my parents were so traditional in some ways, like people would always, people think like, oh, you must have had tiger parents because they were immigrants and they wanted you to succeed. My dad certainly emphasized education, but he did not emphasize me as the girl. It was a lot less important. My brothers had far more pressure to excel. For me, it was kind of like, which was good and bad, right? So I think for me, I've always had a little bit of that chip, not only a little bit on the outside looking in, but also the... um oh, you're a girl, you can't do that. And I had this, like, I, I'm going to show them, show my parents, show the world, show my community, you know, sh show folks that. So I, I ended up going to Stanford and pretty much worked throughout college as well as uh, was fortunate enough to get some scholarships. It was somewhat accidental because I didn't visit any of the schools. I only got this brochure that showed palm trees and beaches, which of course is a kind of a misleading piece of advertising actually, because I arrived and I'm like, okay, my dorm is pink, <laughs> you know, that fabulous like pink stucco. And the beach is not really that close. <laughs> so it was a little bit, and, and I, to be honest, I struggled. I mean, because I was not academically prepared. In, in, I was, you know, valedictorian in my high school, but I was not prepared. I had never gone to any kind of prep school or I didn't even know what an AP class was just to, to situate you. So I, um, I, I, I guess in retrospect, you'd say, yeah, Stanford, blue chip place to go. I didn't feel that way because it was not expected, nor did I think I was going to end up there. But it certainly, it changed my life. I met my husband there. I met lifelong friends. So it definitely changed my life. Now, back to your question about like, you know, attaching your brand and who you are versus where you work. Um, I talk to my team a lot about, are you a good jockey or are you on a good horse? And of course, we all think we're great jockeys. And the reality is sometimes we're not on great horses and sometimes we're on not a great horse and sometimes we're not really a good jockey. And I, I, I really believe in this notion that you yourself need to hold yourself accountable for your impact. So what I'm, what I'm most proud about, about my time at Apple is the work our team did around the transition to power PC and, and the business impact, not so much like, oh, hey, I, I work at Apple and look, Ella Fitzgerald is coming to sing. 
<laughs> you know, which was pretty phenomenal. And those kinds of things, like just remembering who you are. It's really funny because not funny, but enlightening. You know, we went into COVID um, and I was still with Google. And I remember one of my coworkers, a gentleman who works for me saying, you know, working here at Google during COVID is like working for any other company, <laughs> which is kind of telling, you know, because he really valued the experiences of the food and the barista and the sports and, and the community. And, you know, it doesn't really matter where you work. You care about the community a lot. And I think as you mature in your career and over time, you realize, yeah, Apple can be an awesome place. Google's an awesome place. It's more important what you're contributing and your impact. And I think dissecting, like, am I a good jockey? Am I a good jockey? And and can I make the horse I'm on a better horse and win? And so I I personally work really hard to think about like what what are we what's the business impact of what we're doing? I really appreciated the comments that you made about uh, just growing up expectations that were placed on you. It sounds like fortunately for you, you had that drive that allowed you to overcome those. But I know that in many cases. We rise to the level of the expectations and, and, and perhaps no higher. I think about that a lot. I'm a father of five. I've got three daughters. And my wife is a massive finance person. She went to the U University of Chicago MBA, was in finance, financial services. One thing, and it kind of surprised me when we were early in our marriage, she said, if I have girls, they will all be good at math. Full stop. And I watched the way that she treated my girls and, and, and my boys too, but particularly my girls, never let them say, I'm not good at this, particularly the hard sciences or math. It's interesting now because I've got a daughter and she's taking online courses in college. And part of it is participation. Well, my wife can kind of pay attention to what's going on and she'll come in and just encourage my daughter, raise your hand. I heard you talking about this before the class. You need to let these people know. And she'll really push my daughter. And I've seen how my daughter has just blossomed as a result of that. And I'm so grateful for my wife that she, number one, set that kind of an example for my girls and unlocked what was inherently in them. That's a fantastic story, Justin. Thank you for sharing. I agree. It, it, and often when you don't see the role models who are able to actually accomplish, you just don't have an idea of what's possible. And then to your point, there's so much around people not telling you you can do things and how it does start to seep into one's consciousness. I, I think there was some of that. And at the same time, I feel fortunate to have had some pretty good mentors along the way who have said to me, well, why can't you do that? Or why don't you do that? Or why do you think you can't? Like really encouraging and pushing me. So what your wife is doing, I've been fortunate to find in other people. We all need somebody like that in our life. Totally. totally. Well, you dove right in after, after school, went to Apple. Tell me a little bit about Apple and the way it shaped your professional life. Oh, it was fantastic. You know, when you... When you work at a company that has really strong values and a strong culture, and I encourage everyone, you know, early in their careers, work to work for a larger company that is investing in you and giving you all the skills that then you can take and put to work in smaller companies or other places. And, you know, they teach you how to fire, how to hire, how to 
hopefully not fire first, but you know, how to hire, how to negotiate, how to partner, how to run a, a full operational workflow, how to launch products, like just all that wonderful investment. I'm so grateful for it. And um, it was there that I met some people with whom I still stay in touch. Um, it's interesting because that era when I was at Apple was before Steve Jobs came back. So not the big shiny Apple. It was kind of the rotten at the core Apple. You know, I love the press. I love, I love the media. And um, I still thought it was the greatest place to be because it was still thriving. We still had an incredible business. And well, financially, there were some challenges, certainly before Steve came back. Um, there was a woman named Barbara Cardillo, who was the VP of product of marketing, who I just, she was such an inspiration. She had some physical challenges and yet she was, she, she opened my mind to the idea it, that it doesn't matter how you look, shape, size, color. She was a diminutive person in, in size and yet she commanded a room and the whole, you know, insight for me around power and influence. I, I, I credit her with a lot of that. What did she do to command a room? You know, she she had two things I, that I work still work very hard to do. One is she brought a sense of humor, like she was just funny, and she she was not afraid to be vulnerable and poke fun at herself or at others along the way. She just was uniquely credible and herself. Um, and then the other thing is she was always prepared, and you know some of those people who when you first meet them, you think, wow, they're, you know, this person is so authentic and has gravitas and all that. She actually prepared a lot and she built relationships and she knew, she knew her data and facts. Just really credible in that way. Trend Micro is another great step for you in your career. I think you'd mentioned that you grew or on board when revenue grew from 150 million to around 600 million. My favorite part of this story, though, is what happened when you hit the 600 million mark. Do you want to share a little bit about that? Oh, yeah. So Trend Micro, I really think of my time at Trend as going from me to we. You know, it, it's like I, I was such a individual contributor wanting to do a great job. And then my team kept growing and then I became general manager. And it was suddenly like what seems very obvious and I'm sure it's obvious to everyone else it just wasn't to me at the time like it's much more about the team than me so anyway we had a really excellent we had excellent growth across geographies and it was 2012 and it was planning season you, you everyone here knows how that goes and my the CEO said oh Carol where's your 2013 plan I walked over I picked up my 2012 plan because we still printed things then shuffled over to her Blew the dust off, and he said, "Here, here's my 2013 plan." I said, "No, no, this is your 2012 plan. What? Where's your 2013 plan?" I said, "Eva, I said I'm, I'm out of ideas. Like we've done product line extensions, we've done geographic extensions, we've acquired companies to do the product line extensions, we've extended our buying segments. Like I'm flat out of ideas." And that led to a really honest conversation with the CEO about like, well, what else do you want to do? What else could you do? And at one point I was running a small incubation group and we thought about some different ideas and we decided to part amicably part ways. And it was really what I needed a little bit of like 
um, well, that really wasn't the boost. I still was thinking like, oh, maybe I could still do something else here or think about other businesses I could, I could help. Um, so, but it was a good awakening for her and me in terms of, gosh, you know, this SMB and consumer business has, I, I've done everything I can and having that honest conversation. It takes a lot of courage to be able, number one, to acknowledge that you're out of ideas, but number two, to be willing to say, I'm not growing, what else is out there? I often say that your career is a lot like an amusement park. You ride a ride until the ride isn't fun anymore. And the people that I admire get off the ride and they go find another ride that's exciting. Um, and if there are no more rides in the amusement park, you got to go find another amusement park. It's easy to say that in retrospect. It's hard to do that in the moment, though. I love that metaphor. And it's so true. It's so true. And at the same time, I think earlier in my career, and I see this amongst some of the, um, you know, younger workers, there's an impatience too, right? Oh, gosh, you know, the merry-go-round is not that fun anymore. I'm going to go over to the roller coaster. And it's been like less than a year. And Frankly, I, I think it's really hard to show impact in less than two years. So it's kind of interesting to me. So I think there's a little bit of patience. And then to your point, you know, understanding when your watch is over. Yeah, I think there's a balance there. And for me, it's always, are you still on that learning curve? And to your point, that learning curve, usually for me, it's a couple of years, three, four, five years where you're still learning things. And, and then you start to plateau. But you can't be too hasty to, to jump ship either because that, that creates its own set of problems. Reed Hoffman is a person that plays an interesting role in your life. And uh, um, I'd love for you to share, I guess, one particularly poignant question that he posed to you and how that impacted you from a career perspective. Right. So, you know, after I shared the 2012 plan for 2013 with my CEO, I had breakfast with Reed. We, we went to undergrad together and it was at the town and country in Hobie's, which is no longer there. Hobie's such a, like an iconic place here in the Bay area. And we were having breakfast and I'm like, yeah, I'm not sure what I want to do next. And do I stay? Do I think about other companies? Do I go to a startup? I hadn't been in a startup in 10 years. And Reed said, well, how are you contributing? He said, what do you mean? I contribute. I work my butt off. What do you mean? I contribute. <laughs> I'm grow I grew this business. I'm, you know, driving all this international expansion. And what what do you mean? And he said, Well, you live in Silicon Valley. You're living during this incredibly unique, fast-paced, changing time where technology is just changing the way we work, live, and and everything about it. And are you really contributing to your full potential? And are you participating in creating the next waves? And I'm like, Reed, easy for you to say. And but by the way, this is before LinkedIn became successful. I think he was still he was it was the early days of LinkedIn. They, they were probably a little bit successful. Um, I could tell you lots of Reed stories. I still remember he was in our kitchen when he started. He was, he was started. He was at PayPal. And my husband and I said to him, like, what? You mean if you want to pay me five dollars, you would do that? online? Like, why wouldn't you just walk over? and <laughs> Anyway, but what he said has, has really, it really stuck with me. 
it really stuck with me. And that led to me leaving Trend Micro and trying a startup. And I, 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 I agree with what he's saying in the sense of what we were talking about. You A, you have to feel like you're learning. And if you're not learning, it is probably time to look for another ride. And his other point is, are you contributing in a meaningful way to society and the community around you? So you went on to become the CMO of ClearSlide. Great run there. Also the CEO of Elastic Box. That was interesting for me that you actually stepped into the CEO role, CEO role after. Was that a natural transition? It was, it was not a comfortable transition for me. And, you know, everybody says, oh, you learn when you're most uncomfortable. Well, I guess I've learned a lot because... So the CMO role at ClearSlide was a terrific ride. I learned a tremendous amount because I had not been in a startup for about 10 years, as I mentioned. So being in a startup, kind of brushing up on current marketing and digital marketing. And, and at the same time, it was time to move on. When I was at Trend, as a general manager, I was only getting like president and CEO of small company calls. And a friend said to me, this is why it's really good to have mentors and friends who know you. This friend, he was like, are you crazy? Like, just tell them you don't want a CMO role and that you're looking for a CEO role. And I said, well, how do you do that? Like, I just didn't have the confidence and, you know, to do that. I'm like, are you kidding? They're going to laugh at me. And he's like, no, give me a break. And he said, what, what's your time frame? I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, like can, you need, a, you have a year of financial, you know, cushion or six months. Like, when do you actually need a job? Tell yourself you're going to do an experiment for six months and everyone who calls you, you're going to say to them, Hey, I actually want a CEO role and see what happens. And lo and behold, like the first three or calls, recruiters would call and I'd say, no, you know, actually that's great, but I'm actually looking for a CEO role. And boom. It, they would say, I mean, without missing a beat, they would say, oh, I'm actually doing a CEO search over here, or let me connect you to my buddy who's doing one, which such great, you know, it just reminds oneself, like, just lean in, just ask. And if you don't ask, you're not going to receive. So just ask. That's, uh, that has come through on so many different conversations that I've had. To a large extent, we put limitations on ourselves. And when we remove those limitations, we're, we're astounded by the doors that open and the opportunities that emerge. Absolutely. And I will tell you, then a friend who uh, used to work for me actually is now a venture capitalist over at Battery Ventures. He, he pings me and said, oh, so you want a CEO role? He's like, why didn't you tell me? I've got lots of them, you know, anyway. And it was through him. And then um, I ended up meeting the CEO of Elastic Box, who is still a very good friend of mine. I dragged him to Google after me. Just brilliant, brilliant gentleman. So yeah. And look, all these experiences are incredible experiences. I've learned a tremendous amount. And something you and I talked about is I really do believe that being in sales, being exposed to sales makes you a better marketer, right? Like being a general manager, I had sales reporting to me. I had product reporting to me. I had marketing. And it was such a great experience in terms of growth and understanding of what really moves the needle, not just the fun marketing, but what's the fun marketing that's going to move the needle. And it helps you prioritize pretty quickly. And then, you know, being CEO, of course, <laughs> You, you become chief sales officer too. You know, it was a small company. I think the height, it was like 50 people. 
Let's talk about that a little bit more. You're the CMO now of VMware. How has that run that you had as CEO shaped your approach now to being the CMO? Yeah, it's so interesting because I I received a few pieces of advice when I became CEO that have really stuck with me and um and and shape how I look at the business. And the first piece was always start with no. Okay, that was the first piece of advice. Meaning you need to start with a critical eye towards understanding what's really going to make an impact. And so starting with no, it's not necessarily being, you know, don't be Debbie Downer necessarily, but start with a critical eye and ask really critical questions about why are we doing things. You've got some visitors there. Yeah, sorry. Okay, I'm I'm working out of my son's bedroom because he's at college. And a long time ago, we took the lock off the door, which... You, you see, I'm living with the ramifications of my decision. <laughs> a bolt of lightning strikes from the, uh, from the great beyond. <laughs> oh, the so second. So, CEO and CMO. Yeah. And, 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 and so I brought that with me and it just means having a critical eye. And, and the second piece is, you know, when you're CEO, particularly of a small company, you are always strapped for resources. And the second piece of advice was look for outsized impact. And it's kind of starting with no, but really scrutinize. Because when you're CEO and now a CMO of a large organization, people are always asking for a lot of things. And particularly, I mean, I saw this at Google, I see it here at VMware. It is easier to say yes to everything and peanut butter your resources and calories through to, to all these different activities. And we all know what happens when, when that happens is you make everybody happy and you make no one happy and you don't really achieve any outsized impact. So those were the two pieces of advice I brought here. Um, specific to VMware, I th- this is an organization that has been super successful um, had some amazing innovation and technology in the early days. And, you know, it, we are a company that is transitioning from um, a licensed business to a SaaS and subscription business. And and we, we are, you know, transforming every department, every group, the way we treat our customers, the way we market, the way we sell, which I love. I love the change management piece. And, um, I think those pieces of advice, all all three, like how do we drive an integrated go-to-market strategy? How do we drive so that we're not the sum of our silos, but a multiplier? I wanted to talk a little bit about the way that you lead. You've got an organization now of over 700 people, what are the levers of influence that you can personally pull in order to direct that large of a group of people? Yeah, Justin, it's been really interesting. I've always worked. I have two children and I've worked throughout their their early years and in two dogs, as you notice, one just ran back in. And we, I just discovered early on, I was not going to be, I could not be that person who outworked anyone. 
Like, you know, there are those people and early in your career, you know, you want to work really hard and you want to show up and you want to make sure that you answer every email. And um, I just could never be that person. I was always the person who needed to leave to, to relieve the nanny, to make dinner, et cetera. And so I've always focused on two things, people and process. And the people part is hiring the very best people, hiring people who are smarter than I am, people, some people who can work more than I can. <laughs> And, and just having really, really strong, talented people around me. And then the second part is, you know, the process, making sure like not what the actual decision is, but what's the process to make good decisions. What is going to be that process? Because I'm not going to be there for every decision. I don't want to be the bottleneck. I don't want to be the final approver. But if we talk about what's the right process, then I don't need to be involved. And that's how you get scale, right? Um, and the only, only downside sometimes of, this over focus on process is that we sometimes lose sight of the outcomes and, you know, really making sure that we tie everything to business outcomes. This is my other, this is my, my older dog. You, you need to introduce uh, the, uh, the companions to our listeners here. Two furry friends. What are their names? Yes. These are my two coworkers. One is Pepper. She is 15 so usually she just lays on the floor behind me, um, but she just had a bath, I think. So that's why she's coming in to spray me. And the second furry companion is Silas. I love it. Well, we all we all need those companions, and uh, I'm in your boat too. So I think we can all <laughs> we can all sympathize with that. I love what you just said, though. To me, what was very insightful is you were able to identify a finite resource, which was your own time and energy. That seems so simple, but I think the typical response is, I treat my time and my energy as infinite. And then I try to solve the problem based on that flawed assumption. You, on the other hand, said, okay, I'm not going to be able to work an indefinite number of hours. What else can I do to solve the problem? And I think there's a, there's a tremendous amount of wisdom and sanity that comes from that acknowledgement. Well, thank you. It, it came from many years of trying to be the one right who worked the outrageous and then when you have kids it's just it's a great forcing function to figure out other ways to scale and it also helps like a, um, a friend of mine once said like you know you have these balls that you have to juggle in your life and some of those balls are glass and your family is the glass the one you cannot drop love it that's great well, you talked a little bit about the power of process as well, and I'm really interested to understand how do you think about developing strategy, executing on the strategy, and then monitoring and getting involved appropriately through the dashboards that you run? What, what does all that look like for you? Yeah, we're, we're in transition and we're setting up uh, and we're revising a lot of that, again, because we're going through a transition from uh, entirely on-premise licensed business to more of a SaaS subscription business, which requires more of the customer interaction and relationship building. So, you, you know, there's, there's the business transition, which is really the overarching umbrella. For me, so understanding the business goals, how that relates to the strategy of how we're going to market, how our customers are changing, and putting a framework in place around the strategy. So I we did that. I did that here in my first few months, as well as you know, listening tours, relationship building, 
all the things we need to do to understand how decisions really get made. How do you drive influence? You know, the, the people part has been interesting because I had a mentor who once told me, look, when you first start, there's going to be 30% who are going to jump on the bus and be, be on board with your strategy immediately. There's 30% who are going to say, nope, not for me, adios. And they're either going to physically leave your org or find another something else to do or potentially sit around and be your naysayers. You've got to find those really quickly and move them on if you can. And it's that other third who, you know, they're kind of waiting and watching. They're the fence sitters when you start and you really need to get to them very quickly. Articulate your strategy, articulate how they fit into it. And most importantly, you know, in any change management, the why, the why behind all the what, you know, they, it's, we all want to be a valued member, winning team with an inspired mission. VMware as a company, we have an inspired mission, digital foundation for unpredictable times. In terms of being a valued member, that's on me. Like, how do I help them have a voice, be part of the team? And then winning team, you know, you can define winning a lot of different ways, but having achievable goals, objectives that we can get those short-term wins, as well as the longer-term wins, because in marketing, obviously, we're a little bit ahead of sales, and we need to set some of those longer-term goals and implementations. So you asked, how do my dashboards change? Well, first of all, okay, this happens everywhere in every large company, which is what I just call dashboard rabbits. Like they've multiplied and everyone's created dashboards for their pocket and this pocket with different metrics, different ways of cutting demand gen and data and leads. And (laughs) I have pretty much said, no more dashboards, no more silos. So we are in a dashboard moratorium right now. We are going to focus on fewer dashboards because, you know, it happens like they end up being built and they're very useful for a short period. And then the investment to maintain it or share it, it starts to diminish. And so having fewer and you find out actually when you turn off a few dashboards, no one looks at them anyway. Like no one looks at them anyway. No one was using them. So we are down to just a few dashboards. We have consistent definitions. One of the things is we brought many of the operational teams together around that. I'll tell you something that I can't even take credit for it. My head of ops and strategy was like, you know what? We are going to make our dashboards look like the sales dashboards so that when we look at pipeline, it looks just like the way sales looks like. And I'm like, yeah, that's absolutely what we need to do. Like, I don't know why we have all these other dashboards, which don't make any sense to the salespeople. So that in and of itself, forget like if the data is perfect or not. Just the fact we are using the same definitions, the format is the same. I, I can't tell you that has gone so far. It's gone a long way. That's brilliant. Let me wrap up with one more question for you. One of my favorite quotes that you once shared is that, B2B marketing is incredibly boring and dull. Tell me a little (laughs) bit more about that. Spoken like a true marketer. No, this is my lifelong mission. If, if, If we can show the world that B2B marketing does not have to be dull and boring and full of jargon, leverage, digital transformation, um, 
I mean, let's face it, we all just glaze over when a lot of this comes at us. And, you know, it's, you and I talked about this. It's human to human. It's not B2B, B2C. It's human to human. And people buy for three reasons, functional, economic, and emotional. Anything, whether it's a, this pen or a, a computer or um you know, an application management platform, you, you buy it for those three reasons and different doses of each, right? And some of our consumer products have a higher emotional quotient. Others do not. But nonetheless, at the end of the day, it's humans. And so I think we have a responsibility to have B2B marketing that speaks to all three, that has elements of all three that can actually capture hearts and minds. And um, we tried to do some of this, you know, at... I'm wrestling with the, this this one that decided to jump up here. Um, we we tried to do a lot of that at my last company, and we're going to do even more of it here. I'm really excited to do it. Well, Carol, it's been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for sharing a little bit of your story with us and also your wisdom as a CEO, a CMO, and an extremely well-rounded business executive. Thank you, Justin. Great talking to you. This podcast is brought to you by People.ai. People.ai auto-populates CRM with business activity sourced directly from sales teams' inboxes. Visit People.ai to learn more about how sales and marketing teams can harness business activity to unlock growth.